Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Hi, Elise Lunen here. I'm the co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop podcast. And my guest today is Peggy Orenstein. She is a thought leader in so many respects, particularly on issues surrounding young women and sexuality. We'll get to that in a minute. First, thank you to the team at U-Theory, who we partnered up with to bring you today's episode. The research and development team here at Goop spends a lot of time thinking about how we can formulate beauty and wellness products that work from the inside out. Along these lines, U-Theory is a brand we've admired for a while. If you're not familiar, let me fill you in. U-Theory is a family-owned and operated wellness brand. Their MO is to enhance health and beauty through the use of dietary supplements that are carefully developed in-house by their team of experts, using high-quality ingredients from around the world. U-Theory's collagen powder, for example, contains 18 amino acids that are the building blocks of healthy skin. It includes six grams of hydrolyzed collagen peptides per serving, plus hair favorite biotin for added beauty benefits and vitamin C to support the body's natural production of collagen. The best part, it's super easy. You can just add a daily scoop to your morning coffee, smoothie, or beverage of choice. You can find New Theory online and in person at your local health food and wellness retailers. For more info, just head to utheory.com. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest, and I'll come back after their conversation to answer a question from one of you. If you have a question you'd like me to get into in our next round of Ask Me Anything, send it to us at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. All right, over to Elise. Peggy Ornstein is the best-selling author of books like Girls and Sex, Cinderella Ate My Daughter, and most recently, Don't Call Me Princess. She is one of the wisest journalists and writers on sexuality that we know. Much of her work has focused on young women, although it really pertains to every generation. And more recently, Peggy's work has been focusing on young men, too. 
Today, as you might guess, we're talking about sex, starting with girls and how young women learn about their sexuality and how this differs from young men. We talk about what we tend to get wrong or just flat out don't do that we should be doing when it comes to educating women about sex. Peggy shares her advice on how to be a good parent during all of this, which isn't easy. But it's too important to hide from this conversation or try to cover it up. The ramifications when we do this are profound. There's so much we can gain when we engage and when we allow our kids and ourselves to safely develop a sense of our own sexuality. I'm not here to tell you the context in which you should have sex. You know, that's not, that's not my job. But there's things that it will and won't give you. And what I hear from girls about high school and college hookup culture is that it gives you an adrenaline rush, a warm body, a war story, an adventure. But it doesn't give you the tools that you're going to need to have good sex or to forge a relationship. And it doesn't typically result in either of those things. All right, let's cut to my chat with Peggy Orenstein. How did you get here? Like, how did you carve this out as (laughs) your turn? You know, I've always been interested in writing about girls and women. Mm -hmm. And when I started, my first work was a long time ago, was on reproductive rights. And I've always been interested in sort of women's bodies as contested space and what what we're allowed and what our rights are and how we get more rights and all that kind of thing. And this is a time that people are super interested in that, which is very exciting to me. But I always did that. And I I love girls. I love that teenage time. And so I kind of went through it, I think, the first round, thinking about my own teenage years with schoolgirls and some of my earlier work. And then I had a daughter. Yeah. You know, and it just kind of all hits you, you. You've kind of resolve all your own issues when you have, you know, and then you have a, a daughter, and then all your issues, like the day she's born, come roaring back. <laughs> right? And you know, it's incredible. I'm very. I have two boys, and it's a relief to me because I watch. I my husband is very triggered, whereas I can observe them from afar and think that they're sort of fascinating creatures. But I can't imagine having a girl. And watching her grow up, it's hard. And I, I, you know, I have to say that when I, when I, in Cinderella, ate my daughter, which was the book before Girls and Sex, I, I started with I, I didn't want to have a daughter. I yeah. wanted to have a son because I thought it would be easier. But you know, the truth is, is that now I just finished a, a new book that's on boys and sex, and I start it almost the way that I did with. I just hadn't thought about that till this moment that I started Cinderella with I didn't want a daughter, and I start this book with I never thought I'd write about boys, mm-hmm. and. The, the kind of swing in the culture from people saying to me kind of what you just said, which was, gosh, I'm so relieved I have a son, to, uh-oh, yeah. I've got a son because now your job is harder. It is harder. Right? You've yeah. got to raise a good man. Raise a good man in yeah. this age of consent. Yeah. And someone who is participating for the right reasons. Yeah. You know, I think in Girls and Sex, that's one of the themes that I thought was actually really interesting because I think I was reading it from the perspective of being a mom of boys. Mm -hmm. And you do talk to a few boys who are essentially like, I don't really want to do this either, but I feel compelled socially. And it's obviously boys are much simpler in so many ways. Right. And not. I mean, and and it's, you know, it's definitely a paradigm. And it was really interesting for me. To have the other half of the conversation yeah. was really interesting and illuminating and helpful. And I think just like the the girl book, I think, was read by a lot of mothers of boys and also boys themselves yeah. and given to a lot of boys by their girlfriends. I know I got a lot of email from, from young men. Boy, by boys, I mean like, you know, college-age men. And I think that the boy book 
has a lot of value for women and girls to read as well. Totally. Um, so, yeah. It's such a it's so fraught and it's such a yeah. black hole and you know, I think there's this one point when you're talking about Paris Hilton, this is in Girls and Sex and Aria Levy and how she says, "My boyfriend's always told me that I'm sexy but not sexual." Yeah. I thought that was such an incredible moment. It's too. a perfect encapsulation. Yeah, yes. because what that's what girls learn is that you're supposed to look sexy and be sexy, but not understand your sexuality yeah. and not prioritize your own sexual pleasure. And so we sort of, girls sort of learn to conflate sex and sexiness. And I, I remember I was talking to some high school kids after the book came out, and I was they put me in a room just with the kids. The adults all had to leave. And one of the girls raised her hands and said, I had hand said, I have a question for the boys here. How do you express your sexuality? Mm. And the boys look kind of like, what? And she said, because like, for me, I express my sexuality with an, out, you know, like with a short skirt or with an outfit or something. What do you do? And they all look kind of blank. And then one of the boys finally kind of said, uh, I have sex. Yeah. And I thought, that's it, man. I mean, girls learn that expressing sexuality is an outfit. Totally. And boys learn expressing expressing sexuality is sex and sexual pleasure and sexual agency. Exactly. It's a completely the inverse, right? Yep. Men are sexual, not sexy. Yeah. It's also, I thought that that whole section about selfies and self-objectification and how fraught it is because girls should be able to wear whatever they want, mm-hmm. yet at the same time, you're like, are you doing it for the right reasons? And what would those right reasons be? What would right be in exactly. that? Exactly. Yeah. And this idea, too, of just thinking about, since we were talking about her before we started, but thinking about Esther and the whole idea of desire. Mm-hmm. And I think for, you know, she would argue, I don't want to put words into her mouth, but that for women, desire is, or it's being desired. That's right. the turn on. And so I think, too, we've made everything so complex. Right. But then have we, you know, and I don't know. I mean, I think you could do a lot of arguing about that point, but in a com- such a commodified, commercialized culture, we've taken maybe seeds of truth and amplified them and distorted them so that's all there is. And I guess, you know, what I felt like is if all of this sexualization and self-objectification led young women or older women to feel better about their bodies, to enjoy their body more, to be able to express their sexual needs, wants, desires, and limits clearly, Yeah. then hooray. But I just feel like, you know, all of that comes off with their clothes. I know. So what's the how, – how do we fix that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you. I wrote a book about it. No, you know, I, th- I mean, I think thing one was we have to start talking to girls from a really young age about – and, I, you know, again, I say this, I'm raising a daughter, so this is something I think about still daily. But we have to raise them to be aware of both what the culture is telling them and of their own bodies and embodiment. Yeah. So, you know, I, I always talk about what I call the American psychological clitoridectomy, which is that when we have our kids, parents have a tendency to name all of the boys' body parts. So they'll at least say, like, here's your pee-pee. They'll say something, right? right? But with girls, we go right from navel to knees. Mm-hmm. And we leave that whole, like, you know, middle part in there, like, unnamed. And there's no better way to make something unspeakable yeah. than to not name it, right? And then they go into puberty education, which they have if they're lucky. And they learn that boys have, ejacula- uh, you know, erection and ejaculations. And girls have 
periods and unwanted pregnancy. Yeah. Not the same thing, you know, and they see that like, you know, the thing that looks like a Georgia O'Keeffe painting, like a steer's head sort of in the internal yeah. diagram, right? And then it grays out. So we never, you know, so you never see the external genitalia. You never say vulva. You never say clitoris. I was actually looking at, you know how American Girl has those puberty books that everybody reads? I, I don't know if you're young enough to have gotten those, but every girl gets these puberty books, and they're called The Care and Keeping of You. Mm. And Care and Keeping of You, too, has a diagram of the external genitalia that names everything. Except for the clitoris. Except so for the clitoris. So fucked up. It's totally messed up. And why? What is it that they're so afraid of? You know, what are they afraid is going to happen if girls actually are in control of their sexual pleasure? So then, you know, so then they, 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 they not surprisingly, fewer than half of girls masturbate even once between the ages of 14 and 17. Mm. And then they go into a partnered situation. And how in the world would they ever think that sex is about them? Right. How would they know how to express their wants, their needs, their desires, their limits, any of that? How would you know that? Why wouldn't the only thing that you would get turned on by be being desired and yeah. fulfilling somebody else's needs? And it's almost like, I mean, we set them up for this. And it actually not only, you know, cuts off pleasure and opportunity, but it puts them in danger because when you're that disconnected from your own body, you become, you know, less intuitive, you don't listen to your responses, and you are more likely to inadvertently end up in a situation that could be harmful to you. Totally. I want to talk about that. And I also want to talk about control, which you mentioned. And I want to say, just to put a wrap on that, that I thought there was another moment in the book when you're talking about self-objectification and selfies, and sort of how that's the, it's the thing that young women do, right? And then it, we essentially become invisible in middle age, right? Mm -hmm. Suddenly, I've seen it with my friends where Instagram, even just the um, there's no portrait. women over forty on Instagram. No, and but and then when they are, they're posting photos of their or children their kids or of something pretty. They don't post right. selfies. No, yeah, selfies go away. It's so interesting. So it's sort of this like men start posting selfies in middle age. Yeah, yeah, it's it flops. That suddenly it's like as we're as we're no longer of childbearing age and no longer vessels and no longer attractive by the standards of yeah you know unless you're doing a whole lot of messing with yourself then we disappear and that it's unseemly to post a photo of yourself yeah in this culture yes which you know again mixed feelings because on one hand it is one shouldn't be robbed of a sense of sexuality or, or a sexual mm -hmm. self because you're older because obviously, you know, you're not. But on the other hand, what a relief yeah. in a lot of ways. You <laughs> yeah, know? totally. God, I'm so much happier being invisible and past all that and, you know. Yeah. Um, no, but it is an interesting thing. But it is an interesting phenomenon. And yeah. it's not that you want, you know, it's sort of like the being objectified has real and tangible negative impact on young women. Mm -hmm. And yet when, because that's how women's worth is defined, when that's taken away from us, it feels like a loss, mm -hmm. even as deep in our hearts, I think most of us feel a tremendous sense of liberation. Totally. At that point. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a very, it's really complicated yeah. to move out of that age of fertility yeah. and this you know, and also being like, yeah, don't look. I don't want to be looked at. Yeah, I don't want to be desired by anyone except for my partner. 
But then there is a little bit of, I guess, mourning or sadness, or maybe there's not. Or I don't, it's complicated. I don't know. Yeah. You know, I can't, I feel like there, I feel like for me there was, but now I don't remember it anymore because I just, it just feels good now. I mean, it really does. You feel almost like, it's like, I keep thinking, well, you know, what they say is, and what I've written, because I've I've covered women basically from age 12 through their mid-40s in my various books, and that, you know, girls' sort of sense of self goes underground at 12 at puberty, right? And it comes roaring back in their 40s. Mm. And I wish it didn't take 28 years, 28 years to do the math, yeah, for that for that to happen. Yeah. But you do feel it. And when once you sort of recognize that, I mean, people always, you know, say that, oh, it feels good to be I mean, there's lots of things that really suck about it, you know, that my feet hurt, whatever. But it also really does feel you feel like you've landed in yourself again in a way that I hadn't felt in a long time. Yeah. No, and I think too this idea of control which when you think about two children essentially having sex it's like who has the control, right? In some ways the boy has no control, in some ways the boy has all the control yeah. in terms of outcomes. And you think about how women, how we give up that, how powerful it is. Mm -hmm. There was another moment in Women and Sex where you talk about there being fewer relationships. I hope I get this right, but that there aren't as many relationships forming. It's more about, I guess, casual sex, but that people are, in in replacement of that, they're forging identities outside of relationship rather than in relationship. The the, the hookup culture is what you're talking about. And and what's, what's... it's not that people didn't have casual sex before because obviously they did, but it wasn't seen as the path to a relationship in the same way. Yeah. So the, what they, what people mean by hookup culture is that the idea that sexual intimacy precedes emotional intimacy and is what you do first on your way. Right. Like the dating part is like at the end of so things have kind of flipped from from the way that they used to be. So yeah. so originally when people were talking about hookup culture, they would always cast women as victims of that culture. Yeah. And and that's in part because it did happen to a degree because on college campuses when the gender ratio shifted so that there's more f- girls than boys on campus, sometimes a lot more, it meant that young men did, could sort of play the, did, call the shots and play the field more. Right. Um, so there was the idea that women were purely victims, but then sort of in the around 2013, 2014, girls started saying, you know, we're not victims. I've got internships. I've got work. I've got school. I don't want to have, I don't want to do the emotional labor required of a woman in a relationship. So this actually suits me fine for some of them. You know, some of them wanted to talk to me to tell me that. And that was certainly their right. But it was interesting on two levels to me. One was, yeah, it used to be that people formed identities relationally, right? You, You grew through relationship. And now catching feelings, I always thought I'm such a word nerd, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like it's a disease, right? Yeah. Like you get chlamydia, you get syphilis, you catch feelings, you know, all these <laughs> things you don't want to catch. It's bad. But the catching feelings is seen as, as, as bad and weak. And, and in a, I don't – when I say masculinized, I don't mean men all feel this way. I mean but the things that we attribute to maleness, right. uh, masculinized is a sort of uh, sex without that, – that, that deprioritizes feelings as opposed to something that deepens you and lets you know more about yourself. And, you know, it's a, it's a sort of 
I mean, it can be fun, but it can also be a really impoverished form of sex. So what I ended up telling young women about hookup culture was, you know, I'm, it's, I'm not here to tell you the context in which you should have sex. You know, that's not that's not my job. But there's things that it will and won't give you. And what I hear from girls about high school and college hookup culture is that it gives you an adrenaline rush, mm-hmm. a warm body, a war story, an adventure. But it doesn't give you the tools that you're going to need to have good sex or to forge a relationship. And it doesn't typically result in either of those things. So understanding that, I guess, can can help you make your choices and also help you understand why when everybody's always saying, you know, hookups are great, hookups are great, or whatever, if that isn't feeling great to you, maybe it's because these outcomes are not what you personally want from your sexual experience. I always found it frustrating. I don't know how dramatically things have changed since I participated in that world, but you talk to one girl and she she's talking about casual hookups and then the next day and how like at this point like you're lucky if you get a text acknowledgement and that her feeling which I completely understand is was look me in the eye I don't want to marry you yeah I always found that so frustrating that the presumption that girls are going to be quote clingy exactly like I was preemptively dumped multiple times by people that I was like, we're not dating. Like, right. you can't dump me. I know. We're not in a relationship. <laughs> yeah, I know. That that just assumption. And that's why I said, you know, like, I don't, when I say masculinized or feminized, I don't mean, because that, that yeah. puts girls in this trap of being the carriers of feelings. But I just, in, in the Boys and Sex book, in the new book, at one point, I have a conversation with a group of college students the morning after. Like, I've gone to their party the night before, and then I come back the morning after. I want your job. <laughs> And we were talking about the whole next day text issue. And it was so fraught for them. And there was part of me that was just thinking, like, are you kidding me? Yeah. It's a text, man. It's just a puny little text. But it had so much meaning to them, like, when you did it, whether you did it, how long you waited. Like, this, the, one of the boys was saying the text is harder to deal with than the hookup itself. Why? Because it can have all these shades of meaning and you're trying to control the meaning that it has and you don't want to appear over eager and you don't want to appear. And so sometimes the boys would say to me, like, I'm just in, it's just too hard. So I just don't do it. Oh, it's so interesting. And that's why they're or, – or like one, one guy was saying to me, you know, you don't know what she was thinking. Like did she – was she just out for a one evening good time? Or what? And you don't want to risk looking yeah. like an idiot. So you don't want to look her in the eye or speak to her or, you know, he said you'll see her walking down the street and you'll just look away because what if you smile at her and she doesn't, you know, smile back or she thinks, dude, it was a party, you know, or something. So better just not to put yourself out there in any way. It's so amazing. I mean, that's definitely one of the pervasive themes, the complete fear of vulnerability. Total fear of vulnerability. Fear of vulnerability, fear of numbing your feelings. Like at one moment you're talking about just the the, – how – Alcohol is essentially yep. a prerequisite, not necessarily because people are getting, or this is what I inferred, that they're getting so shit faced that they lose control of their impulses, but simply because it becomes the thing on which you can blame the yes. experience. Right. I did it because of, it's like the reason to have sex. I, not you were attractive, not I liked you, but or I, I was, was lonely. Yeah, yeah. I was drunk. Yeah. So it's always, you can always get off the hook Yeah. if you were 
drunk for your behavior and you don't have to attribute it to any kind of feeling or anything like that. So yeah, it's a it's a it's it's absolutely the necessity before a hookup. And also because if you don't know somebody well, having sex is kind of awkward, you know. It is. So well, it requires an incredible amount of vulnerability. Yeah. And so you don't want to if you don't want to feel that yeah. It also was interesting, too. You were talking to a girl who had been having what she called jackhammer yeah. sex. And I think we can all relate to that, like having someone hump you like a dog for months. And you were at, you were like, why would you continue to sleep with them? And she, she said, well, at the end of a night, I need a boy or, or a, a burrito. burrito. And another amazing moment. But like, <laughs> again, like the numbing or this need for some sort of um, comfort. Yeah. Which, yeah. I, I mean, I completely understand, but I think it's interesting how, and I'm not saying I was any different, but how we just don't know how to feel about our feelings. Right. So it seems like it's a, on two levels. It's that, this fear of vulnerability, fear of looking lame, fear of rejection, all of those normal things which we have to learn how to experience mm-hmm. in order to become adults. And then this terrible sex education system. Right. Like, that seemed so empowering at the end when you're visiting the sex educator who is teaching, like, role-playing with kids. Oh, my God. She was so incredible. Yeah. How to how to yeah. say no, like, how to get yourself out of a situation, how to say yes. Yeah. How to say no, how to say yes, what is – I mean, she would do things like – she. I mean, there were, there were a lot of exercises that she did that I didn't get into the book, but – she would do one thing where she would have kids go to, you know, one side of the room if they agreed, the other side of the room if they disagreed, and there was you weren't allowed to hang in the middle. She yeah. Said, Nobody gets to hang in the middle. But she would um, – things like, is oral sex sex? Right. Yes or no? And then kids would go to different sides of the room and they would argue about it. Like, well, kind of, kind of not. I'm not really sure. That was one where they were like, can we stay in the middle? But, like, that's a really interesting – question. And so she said to the people who said no, she said, well, so I have a girlfriend who is gay and she's had 500 sexual partners, but she's never had penis-vagina intercourse. Has she had sex? (laughs) You know, they're like, oh, well, you know, but just like getting people to think about like how we make these you know what 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 this all means to us how what the shorthand is we use what the language means what sex is what is sex what is intimacy you know these very very basic things that we just we don't talk to our children at all mm-hmm. you know i mean and we talk to our sons less than our daughters right. and now are expecting a great deal of them and by the way especially with boys but with all kids now they're also looking at porn online by the time they're certainly 12 so that's what they're – that becomes a form of, you know, a really twisted form of sex education. And I'm not – you know, if you're an adult, you want to look at porn, you – God bless, go do whatever you want to do. But it concerns me to think about kids looking at porn as an educational tool and looking at it for years before they would even have their first kiss. Totally. Um, it's an educational tool for pleasure. Yeah. It's a joke, clearly. Yeah, for Certainly for women. And, yeah. you know, when you talk about that jackhammering thing, I mean, that's what – they learn sex is supposed to be. And so again, you know, going kind of circling back around to the boys, it's fascinating to talk to them about porn. And I never would say like, do you watch porn? Because that would shoot my credibility to hell. I would say, when did you first start watching porn? Right. Because they all do. Every single one of them. 
I mean, some of them have stopped for one reason or another, a small percentage, but they all have seen it. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Just a second, we're taking a quick break. When we scout out new beauty and wellness products, we tend to gravitate toward the things that are effective but also easy to use, ones that allow us to feel healthy and beautiful from the inside out. This is the kind of thought process behind New Theory's line of collagen products. New Theory is a family-owned and operated wellness brand with a solid line of health and beauty products. They've developed an extensive range of clinically supported collagen goods, ranging from tablets to powders to liquids and quick dissolve mixes, so you can get the many benefits of collagen in the delivery format of your choice. One of the heroes of the line, though, is U-Theory's collagen powder. One of the natural effects of aging is changes in skin collagen, and this powder supports the production of healthy new collagen, with six grams of hydrolyzed collagen peptides per serving. It also has biotin and vitamin C, which are included to give your skin a supportive boost. U-Theory's collagen powder comes in several flavors, including an unflavored option, which I like because I can add it to pretty much anything. But you might love the vanilla-flavored powder in your coffee or morning smoothie. Either way, it's an easy daily dose of collagen for your body. And as you likely know, collagen lays the foundation for healthy skin, hair and nails, plus strong bones and joints too. To learn more about U-Theory or to find their products at a retailer near you, head to utheory.com. A few weeks ago, it was my eighth wedding anniversary. And as we come out of wedding and anniversary season, I've been thinking about the different ways we celebrate certain moments and how we can create memories in our lives. And if you've listened to my conversation with Chip Heath on this podcast, you know this is something I think about a lot. Weddings and anniversaries are, of course, often marked by the exchange of a special piece of jewelry, although some of the jewelry that is most special to me wasn't necessarily tied to an obvious date on the calendar. Simon G. Jewelry specializes in fine jewelry for the traditionally big special occasions and for the moments that we can make into special occasions. Over the past three decades, Simon G. has become known for combining old-world romance with modern techniques. Their pieces are glamorous and timeless at the same time. And if you happen to be looking, I'll say that Simon G. makes incredibly beautiful engagement rings, too, which stole the show in Goop's engagement story this past May. Around that time, Goop also launched our first G-label fashion capsule for men. And now, Simon G. just released their first men's collection, too. Their 18-piece collection includes rings, necklaces, and bracelets in 18-karat gold, diamond, and rubber. So, to shop for that special man or woman in your life, head to simongjewelry.com and find a retailer near you. That's S-I-M-O-N and then the letter G. Okay. 
Let's hear more from Peggy Orenstein. How in your in your many years and exploring this, do you what are there changes that you've observed that seem striking? Or do you feel like we're all sort of muddling through this in the same way that we have for decades? I think both. You know, I mean, just like we live in this moment in culture where there's been some, where there's like all this feminist progress while we're also having like the worst oppression ever at the same time. Yeah. You know, when I started doing this, consent was not a conversation. Right. You know, I mean, it was right before I started doing this right before all the discussion about campus rape broke. Mm. And I think even in reading Girls and Sex Now, when I look back at it, I see my own struggles in trying to understand what consent meant. And again, you know, I mean, consent, I, I always try not to get, and I was really glad that we didn't start there because I, I don't want my conversations about what a positive sexual experience entails to be hijacked by consent yeah. because I think we're a lot more comfortable talking about consent because that's a legal issue and because we're more comfortable talking about girls as victims of sexuality than agents of sexuality. Yeah. So even though like super important, super crucial, yeah, obviously, obviously, it's also like a really low bar. Yeah. Like I was not raped. It's a really low bar for your sexual experience. So I think that the discussion of consent can mask or substitute for a whole lot of other Discussions, but that said, that has been a huge shift among a lot, not all, you know, just like not all in the culture around feminism right now, et cetera, but among a certain, a big group of people, there, boys and girls, there's a much more sophisticated and nuanced discussion and understanding of consent, and that is great. I think that the, I mean, but I agree with you. That's basic stakes. Yeah. It's basic stakes. And then how do we teach our kids to have fulfilling and rich right. sexual relationships Right. So deep I mean, feeling, right? You know, yes. I love that. That's exactly right. You know, I looked at other cultures. Mm-hmm. So I ended up, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Dutch. I'm like ready to go. I mean, you can say I'm wearing clog <laughs> boots today because in honor of the Dutch. And because it's winter in San Francisco. And because it's 56 <laughs> degrees in the middle of July here. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be jealous. But yeah, I'm like ready to buy wooden shoes. But the the Dutch, I mean, they, the, like, the, there was one study that I looked at that was a comparative study of 400 American and Dutch college students who were similar demographically. So it was apples to apples comparisons. And they were talking about their early sexual experience. And the Dutch girls had like everything we say that we want. You know, they had enjoyed their first time. They could communicate with their partner very well. They knew their partner very well. They were prepared for their sexual experience. They had better body images. They were more likely to use contraception. You know, like everything, everything that you say you want, these girls had, the American girls not so much. And the difference when they talked to them on a one-on-one level was that the Dutch girls said that their parents, teachers, and schools had talked to them early from a very early age and consistently over time about sex, sexual pleasure, and the importance of having that deeper relationship with somebody. And especially their parents. Mm -hmm. They talked about – it wasn't that the parents were more more comfortable necessarily. Like it's it's uncomfortable to talk to your kid about sex, which is not an excuse not to do it. You don't get to stop parenting because you feel awkward. Right. But the – Dutch parent, American parents talked about risk and danger pretty much exclusively. And Dutch parents frame it in terms of balancing responsibility and joy. Mm, I love that. I know. It was like I felt 
smacked in the face when I read that. I thought, oh, my God, that is exactly what I would have done. Mm-hmm. I would have talked to my daughter. And it's hard. It is really hard not to only talk about that because there's so much risk and danger out there. You yeah. know? So to talk about so, – so to try to continually think in your mind, am I talking about balancing responsibility and joy? And what does that mean to me? What does that look like? What is the long game here that I want for my child? And that gets less abstract, more concrete, and more difficult when your child becomes a teenager. Yeah. Because then, like, you start getting those feelings of, like, am I giving them permission? I don't want to give them permission. I mean, I don't want to say, go do it with whoever you want. You know, like, or maybe I do. I don't know. You know, so. It's complicated. It's really complicated. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Toomey has a soft side. Discover their new Acer bag collection in its pillowy pleats, satin finish, and crescent shape. Acer is the bag to carry for your 9 to 5 and the 5 to 9 plans that follow. Versatility, after all, is Toomey's signature. Shop the full Acer collection on Toomey.com or at a Toomey store near you. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. We're going to take a quick break. Okay, here's a movie that will draw you to the theaters. The Goldfinch from Warner Brother Pictures and Amazon Studios is based on the Pulitzer Prize winning novel of the same name. It's about a boy named Theodore Theo Decker who is played by two talented actors. Ansel Elgort plays Theo as an adult and Oakes Fegley plays him as a child. In the beginning of the story, when Theo is just 13 years old, his mother is tragically killed in a bombing at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. This moment, and an ill-fated split-second decision that Theo makes in its aftermath, changes everything. From here, we follow Theo's remarkable journey through grief and guilt, redemption and love. All along, he's both haunted and propelled by the one piece of hope that he clings to from that day in the museum, a painting of a tiny bird chained to its perch, the goldfinch. This is a beautiful coming-of-age story about the ripple effects of a single event. It's directed by John Crowley, whose work you might know and love from Brooklyn. And it also stars Finn Wolfhard, and Iron Barnard, Sarah Paulson, Luke Wilson, Jeffrey Wright, and Academy Award winner Nicole Kidman. The Goldfinch comes out in theaters everywhere on September 13th, and we can't wait. And now, back to today's conversation. I was thinking about this on the plane up here this morning. I I remember that movie Kids. That came out yes. when I was in high school. I remember that movie. And holy shit. I, I mean, know. that was so deeply was traumatizing. Awful. Yes. And scared the bejesus out of I me know. as that kid rampaged New York with HIV and took that girl's virginity. I and know. It was awful. It was awful. And I rewatched that while I was working on the book. Oh, you did? Yeah. Because it was so... Oh, it was so dark. And I think that for me, <laughs> in some ways, was all I needed to really want to control yeah. my experience. And, but I don't know if but that's, that's so negative. Right. I know. Yeah. I was going to say, now thinking about responsibility and joy. Yeah. And there was joy. I mean, I have no regrets about yeah. how, it, you know, like how I lost my virginity was my first love. And yeah. it wasn't that big of a deal as it isn't. Yeah. yeah, as most people find. But, you know, again, so you're focused on virginity, but what about, like, focusing instead on on orgasm, right? right? 
Yeah, no. You know? I mean, like, that's what one, one of the things that I write about in Girls and Sex is, is gay girls, right? And one of the things that they that I really thought about with them was, like, you know, as I said earlier, like, sort of, what did it mean? What did virginity mean to them? Yeah. And I asked one of the girls that I was interviewing, and she sort of went, yeah, you know, I didn't know what that meant for a gay girl, so I Googled it. And there was no answer. So Google needs to get on that a little better, I think. But she said that she ultimately decided that it was when she had her first orgasm with a partner. Mm, and I, I just that. thought, I know, I thought, what if that was the definition? Because when girls think about first intercourse, they think about, they anticipate, you know, it's kind of something you sort of dread. Yeah. I mean, you're excited, but you worry it's going to hurt. You certainly don't expect to have an orgasm. You know, you expect your partner to. It's like best. There's, there's this absolutely brilliant essay that all of you should read this second by Heather Karina. She wrote this essay about a girl's first time, and it, you have to read it, but it just, it sounds like what you want, right? The girl, she's with a partner she loves and, you know, she she's basically ready and he's caring and it's consensual and blah, blah, blah. But at no point is she talking about and my eyes rolled back in my head and my toes curled. And she sort of stops the essay in the middle and says, you know, this is what we think we want, but this is not actually mm-hmm. what should happen. And then she sort of does it. She kind of twists it. And it's another one of those moments like with the Dutch where I just went, ugh. Yeah. My script is wrong. My script is wrong. True. That would completely redefine the way that we approach it or think about it. Because I think, too, for orgasm, when we go back to control, I think for a lot of women, and I might be projecting, but that there is this control thing too of like I'll I'll have you know at least when you're a teenager I'll have sex like I'm giving yes I'm kind but like I'm not there's many men and boys don't know what they're doing right to create that to create an orgasm or help facilitate and the it. girls don't either and the girls don't either yeah. but then there's also this like I'm but I'm not going to give you that right right like I'm not going to relinquish control right I'm still. I'm still the puppet master of this entire situation. Exactly, and that's partly what girls feel and will say they get out of sex at that age is a sense of control over their partner and a sense that he, you know, is grateful. Yeah, and he has no control. Yeah, and again, you know. Okay. Okay. But (laughs) what are you getting out of it? Right, and so it's not – and again – and also I don't want to put pressure on girls and women to – to orgasm, you know, mm-hmm. and, and but I do feel that it reframes the idea so that sex, rather than being this race to this particular goal, is more like this pool of experiences. Yeah, that includes arousal and desire and affection and pleasure and yes, orgasm. And you really kind of want to need to be there. Yeah, and that I think is often missing too when you're thinking about it as like, oh, a boy or a burrito, right. and am I, I bored? Right. You know, I know. Am I just laying here because it's yeah? But I, I also have been thinking I think lately. I've been having a lot of thoughts about female orgasm that I have not written down yet. But I was thinking about how there's always a kind of orgasm women are supposed to be having. Mm-hmm. So I mean, men, they just come right. You have an orgasm. You have an orgasm. That's it. Women, it used to be that you had to have the vaginal orgasm. Then you had to have the multiple orgasm. Then you had to have that orgasm that went for two hours. Now you're supposed to have the squirting orgasm. When girls are talking to me, they're like, what are you even talking about? Where did you get that? You know, the G-spot orgasm. Like, whatever kind of orgasm you're having is wrong. Is wrong. <laughs> and 
That makes me so – I'm just like, this is – we've got to point this one out. I Somehow, somewhere, I've got to point this out and make it stop. I've just yeah. started that. So this is my first flag in the sand about this. Whatever kind of orgasm you're having or, you know, like it, the, the clitoral versus vaginal or like if you're touching yourself during intercourse as opposed to, you know, purely coming because your partner is having – you know, you're having the intercourse alone, that that's wrong. Like there's some wrong right. and right way for women. There's always a right and wrong way for women to have orgasms. That's not true for men. Like All just right. have your damn orgasm. Yeah. Just have a pleasurable experience yeah. where you both get something out it's of it. It's teamwork. Yay. <laughs> My final question is in 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 your work with boys because I've always I'm curious about this and yeah. the the just bringing it back to the beginning and the oversexualization of young girls and women and where does that come from and does that actually do men even know these boys do they even know what is sexy or is it defined by culture or are they just brainwashed into like baby gap bikinis <laughs> or did that I'm just curious because hmm. um, to me it always seemed like some sort of collective brainwashing. Yeah, I mean, and I think that we're all, you know, so especially this generation that is subject to so many more images yeah. than any previous generation. I mean, it's just image, 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 image. And suddenly, like, every single girl can make the exact same face in front of the camera. Right. I was just listening to something on the way over here that was talking about how we all unconsciously conform to those around us so that there's like micro facial expressions mm-hmm. and such that we all will sort of just not even know we've absorbed. And I think that we all strive, you know, we all think we're individuals, but in fact, we all strive to be individuals yeah. in very conformist ways and yeah. to assimilate. And so obviously standards of beauty and standards of sexiness and, you know, who's putting on makeup, even men or women or whatever, have changed radically. Who's setting over the history. agenda? Right now, influencers, man. I don't know. Yeah. You know? I don't know. It's just a curious because I do think that there is a conformity. And as yeah. a teenager, I always felt that that I went to boarding school and it was like the guys would sort of collectively determine or one sort of brave right. guy would be like, that girl's hot. Right. And then there would be a collective opinion. Of hotness. Yeah. Of and hotness. I mean, boys would needed- say like that, that, that obviously... You know what they would say? Like one boy was, was telling me a story about hooking up with this girl that was a big get for him. Like it was really good for his social status. He was a high school boy. And he was like, yeah, she's really objectively, you know, she's really hot. But I wasn't really like that attractive to her. But yeah. I knew that she was hot. So she was a good person for me to hook up with, you know. And like, That's so interesting too. Like teasing sad. those things out for, <laughs> for kids though. Like yeah. what are you actually attracted to versus what have you been – I mean, one of the things that, that Karis, the woman at the end of the book, talks about that, that I say to kids a lot is like, I mean, what she says is like, you would never go into an English exam without knowing what book you were being tested on. But you'll go to a party without even thinking about what you don't want to happen. Yeah. So if like sort of treat it like a, a little more like, not academically, but, you know, thinking about what do you want from this moment? What do you want from this? I mean, you know, it doesn't mean you're going to get it, but what? choices and what behavior would best serve you and best facilitate that and what is going to just like blow that up and make it impossible. And if you keep on doing the thing that blows it up and is lousy, why are you doing that over and over? And and what she always says is that her job, and I think about this a lot too as a, a parent or as a person who talks to kids, is to have as many help 
her students have as many make as many decisions as possible that end in joy and honor rather than shame and regret. Mm. And I think that so much of being a young woman and trying to navigate the sexual landscape is does end up being about shame and regret. Yeah. And I would just like to think about how we can have more of it end up with joy. Joy and pleasure. And pleasure and honor and feeling good about yourself. And that does not mean, with an, you know, only having sex in a certain... Yeah, and responsibility. N- not having, you know, it doesn't mean only having sex in certain, you know, I, relationships can be abusive and bad too. I'm not saying that you should always be, you know, but the, but thinking about what, what you want, what is going to serve you, what you hope for, just giving a little thought, which means not just to this t- tonight, mm-hmm. but I think about it as a parent when raising children, what do we want for them in the personal realm and how can we equip them so that they can make the choices totally. that will get them there. And name their desire. And name their desires and understand their vulner- understand and embrace vulnerability. Yeah, absolutely. And have well, empathy. Totally. And be kind to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean that's the thing with hookup culture. It is a, an unkind culture. Yeah. And it and, seems to be a cycle based on what mm-hmm. you're of like wanting to step out of right. that vulnerability and circle. And my hope with hookup culture, I guess, is that if you're going to engage in it, is there a way that we can do it, that, that young people can do it in a way that's kinder, more ethical, more compassionate towards their partner and less dehumanizing? I hope so. I believe there could be. But that is not how people think about it. You're You're humane in your relationships and you're not humanizing in your hookups. Right. Which is... To go back to the Dutch, irresponsible. Yeah. Well, it has been a pleasure. What fun this has been. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my chat with Peggy Orenstein. You can see more from Peggy at goop.com slash the podcast and at peggyorenstein.com. That's P-E-G-G-Y-O-R-E-N-S-T-E-I-N. And don't forget to check out our books, you can start with her last essay collection, Don't Call Me Princess. Now, over to GP for today's AMA. What is your go-to concealer for under-eye bags and blemishes? Zena, I was very intrigued by the spelling of your name. X-I-N-A. I like the RMS concealer. I think it's really good. I think it's a good one. Thank you, GP. If you have your own question you want GP to answer, drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back next week for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.